All right, well, uh, we have arrived at the moment. I was praying for the rapture, uh, <laughs> but it didn't quite come yet. It could come before the end of the hour, and I will continue to pray. Uh, looking forward to, I, now, I, all, all seriousness, I have been looking forward to the opportunity to uh, work through this text. I, I will say, historically, though, this, this could be one of the quietest services, uh, maybe, um, in the history of the church. Um, as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, you can turn there. Uh, there is a handout, and I don't know if there's still ushers in the back, uh, but it, maybe I could uh, get a few guys. Are, are there any handouts left in the back to give out? Okay, there are. Um, there are a few substantial quotes that I'm going to give you tonight, and so if you, uh, even if you don't take notes that way, if you, if you uh, would like a handout, we'll have you raise your hand in just a moment when the ushers get those handouts uh, so that they can give them uh, to you. Okay, so we've got some here. Uh, if you need a handout, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll give as many out as we can um, before we run out here. Um, but um, uh, there's also some information. Um, when we get to a certain point in the perspective uh, in the text, and I start talking about the silence of women, I'm actually just going to present the way I see the text, although there are other good ways of seeing that. If you look in the footnote, you know, I give one footnote to you. Uh, for your homework to do some other time. There are other ways of seeing the text that I think are, are good, uh, but uh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to try to get distracted by all that. I'm just going to try to present uh, the perspective on this that, that I have in the clearest fashion uh, that I can. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, as Paul is dealing with the chaotic worship practices in the Corinthian assembly, he gives them three guiding values. Remember what these are? You should know two of them by now. One is edification. You see that word used all throughout. It's, it's sometimes translated building up. Building up, Corinthians, you should be concerned about building up the body of Christ when you gather to worship. And if anything is compromising that, you need to be concerned. You need to change it. You need to uh, correct it. He then gives the second guiding value, which is that fancy word, right, that difficult word. But it is translated this way in the ESV, intelligibility. Uh, when you gather together in the assembly, you come together, people need to understand, needs to be intelligible. And so uh, he takes some time to work through that up until verse 25. And then, in my opinion, verses 26 through 40, he's establishing or getting to a third guiding value for the church to, for them to apply in matters of worship, and that is the principle of order or orderliness. So when we come together, it should not just be chaos. It should not just be like all this random stuff happening at the same time. There should be purpose to it. Um, and so it should be proper and manifest order. And so um, this is one of the reasons I'm thankful for Paul Q, who does a great job in organizing our services and, and really working hard so it all flows, it fits together, because I think that's important as well. Now, most businesses or ventures in life require there to be some sort of order for the venture to be successful. Uh, many of you in the room know far more about the military than I ever will, but um, from my novice perspective, I, I don't know of any officer who would tell his troops, you know, you don't really need to be concerned about order in this next battle. You know, so uh, we're going to go in there, and what are we going to do? We're, well, we're just going to attack. Okay, well, is there like any rhyme or reason to the attack? I mean, we flanking anyway, you know, no, 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 we're just, 
We're just going to hit them hard. Okay, but, you know, how am I going to know when to shoot off certain things? And I'm already going beyond my level of expertise here. (laughs) Uh, How are we going to know? I mean, is there any strategy to this? No, you know, a a good officer would say you have to have order. You need to stay in rank. You have to have order in the battle. And so as Paul is talking about uh, the worship in Corinth and their, their gatherings, he says it must be orderly or else it's not going to build, and people won't understand what's going on. And uh, so Paul suggests that order is important for their gatherings. And uh, what I'd like to do this evening is I would like to just work through this text, verses 26 through 36, with you. And I think that Paul is uh, establishing two thoughts, and I want to trace his thoughts through this passage. First, Paul begins with some opening remarks in verse 26. Look in your Bible, verse 26. It says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Here, in Paul's initial remarks, he describes, I think, the actual, actual situation in the gatherings in Corinth. Uh, the nature of the services in the Corinthian house churches were disorderly, and Paul starts by describing it this way. He says, Each one, each one of you, every one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, they all think they have something that they need to contribute to the corporate gathering in the house churches, and they are ready to express it. One commentator described it this way. His last name is Lockwood. He writes, the picture is here is of a church filled with many excited people impatiently trying to express themselves at the same time. So each Christian, every one of them, felt that they had something that, they, that must be contributed in the gathered assembly. Now, Paul arranges their contributions in uh, five, with five words, or five categories. And the order of these categories may just be random, may have just kind of like chosen five words that were part of their service, or uh, better yet, I, I think that he might be describing, at least in seed form and generalities, the order of the worship of the early churches as he goes through these five. And so it's, it starts with a hymn or hymns, which would be songs of praise that were either created spontaneously or composed earlier. Start with hymns, songs of praise. Next, Paul speaks of a lesson. That's how the ESV translates the word. I I'd actually prefer the word teaching, teaching, because this comes from the same root for the word teacher, teacher. So you start with singing, then you go to a teaching that normally would come from a teacher, some sort of teaching from the word of God. And then he says uh, there would be a revelation. That word is often connected to prophecy in the New Testament. So prophets gave new words of revelation from God. And so as I'm kind of working through this, if this is an order of service in many of the early churches, it would be they're going to sing, there's going to be a teacher teaching, there's going to be prophets prophesying, and then there's going to be tongue and an interpretation. And uh, we, of course, have talked about tongues and interpretations as well, but I'll notice again that Paul puts them last and suggests that each one of the, each one has one of these things. So it went singing, teaching, prophesying, and then tongue-speaking and interpreting in the assembly. 
Now, after describing, I think, their early assemblies, Paul gives them a command. He issues one of the guiding values that we've already seen. So we don't have to do much with this. I want you just to see the command at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Let's call this command a reminder and a summary for the Corinthians. It's a reminder. I've already talked to you about let everything be done for building up, but he's summarizing what's come before. Uh, But there is one other important thing I want you to see about this in your Bible. If you look in your Bible at verse 26, the beginning of this section, and you look at the end of this section, I think that we can see where Paul is going. So look in your Bible at verse 26 there at the end. It says, let all things be done for building up. In a parallel way, and using many of the same words, that's how Paul closes in verse 40. So he kind of puts this bracket around verses 26 through 40. Look at verse 40. But, and then these next words um, are all the exact same words. Let all things be done. So in verse 26, let all things be done for the building up the body. But here, let, let all things be done decently and in order. So Paul puts the bracket around this, and it helps us to see where he's going. All things, uh, if they're going to build, must be done properly and orderly. Okay, and so those are Paul's opening comments in verses 26 through 40. Now, the only other thing we're going to try to accomplish this evening is we're going to look at uh, the next point in my notes, Roman numeral two, which what I would call um, Paul gives some worship Uh, he describes some worship expressions that must be silenced. Or he describes some worship issues in the church. And I I see there being three categories here of worship problems. He's getting very specific with them. And he's helping them to see exactly what some of their problems are, okay? And, you know, you can see these three problems. I mean, I'm amazed by how God, through the Holy Spirit, led these men to write these words in such a way that you can see the outline, okay? So uh, there is a word that is repeated three times at the end of these three sections that kind of help us see when things are wrapping up. So look down in your Bible at verse 28. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. It says, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church, and speak to himself and to God. Then look with me at verse 30. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. And then look with me as well at verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches. Okay, so what is the word that's repeated three times at the end of the three major sections? You can say it out loud. Silence. Yeah, and everyone can actually say it. Um, All men, all women. Okay, so I know, bad joke, bad joke. Well, try to stay focused. I'm just stalling till the rapture, so. Okay, so you got this word repeated three times at the end of these three sections. There are three worship issues in the church that must be corrected by silence. Uh, the first of the three issues is, is a problem with tongues. If you're taking us in the handout, it's, it's a problem with tongues in verses 27 and 28. Look down in your Bible at verse 27. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is not one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church 
and speak to himself and to God. Now, I'm going through a text this large. We might not be able to deal with every phrase, but I want to kind of just help you understand in big picture, as I understand what's going on in this text. In verses 27 and 28, then, Paul reveals some problems with tongue speaking in the churches of Corinth. They were failing, I believe, to exercise much restraint or any restraint at all when they were speaking in tongues in the church. So Paul puts a few regulations on them here. First, Paul puts a maximum number of tongue-speaking occasions in one worship expression, one gathering. He says, at most, three expressions of tongue-speaking can happen in the church. I think by putting this limit on it, limit to number, he's making sure that the service doesn't get out of balance. So it's not just like all tongue speaking all the time, various languages at different times. Secondly, though, Paul puts another regulation on them, and he requires that tongue speakers take turns so that no two or three expressions of tongue can take pla- tongues can take place at the same time. I think this requirement, again, will produce orderliness in the assembly as well. But then third, he places another requirement on them, a regulation on tongues. Paul requires for an interpretation to be given anytime tongue speaking occurs in a language that the Corinthians cannot understand. So this requirement strongly implies, from my perspective, that Paul understands tongue speaking to be speaking in a foreign language. Okay, so, you know, I just asked the question, how can you interpret something that has no meaning to anyone, to the speaker, to anyone else? The answer is you can't. Gibberish cannot be interpreted. So I think it at least strongly implies that he's thinking of tongues as foreign languages. But then finally, he puts one last restraint on them. He says that tongue speakers must keep silent in the assembly if there is no one there who can interpret their tongues into the language of the Corinthians. Now, one of the things I want to point out here in this first passage that I think is important for us to get is that the silence that Paul requires, and you you might consider actually writing this down or at least thinking through it, the silence that Paul requires of these tongue speakers is not absolute silence. It's not that. It's not as if there's no one there to interpret so the tongue speaker can say absolutely nothing in the church. But it's a qualified silence. It's a particular kind of silence that Paul suggests for the tongue speaker, and that is he doesn't want them speaking in tongues if there's no one there to interpret. That doesn't mean the tongue speaker can't participate in other ways in the service. It means, you know, when they're singing hymns, he can sing. If there are other appropriate times when he is to to speak or she is to speak in the service, he can do that as well. He's just not supposed to speak in tongues. So it's, it's not absolute silence, but it's qualified. He can't speak in tongues unless there's someone there to interpret. I'm gonna return to why that's important in a moment. So I said there are three worship problems you need to work through in this text. The first one is tongue speaking, and Paul gives some regulations. But then you look in your Bibles at verses 29 through 33a, first part of verse 33, and he deals with the second problem. The second problem is prophecy. Okay, there's a problem going on here, and Paul's going to put some regulations on it here. Look in your Bible at verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said, 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let them first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So in these verses, Paul puts restraints upon prophecies as well. I think he's doing this in a similar way to what he did with tongues. You know, so with tongues, there had to be an interpreter, or you needed to be silent. With prophecies, there had to be a weighing of the prophecy, or someone there to weigh or evaluate the prophecy. And so uh, we'll work down through this as well. He gives multiple restraints on prophecy here. First, he limits the number of manifestations of prophecy in the assembly. In one gathering together, there are to be no more than three prophetic words given. You see that there? Secondly, then, though, he says uh, another regulation is he requires there to be people there to weigh the prophetic utterances. There's some dispute about the word others. Let the others weigh, whether these are prophets themselves or someone else. It, it could be either. It could be a new group. I personally would say that the weighing or the evaluating of prophecy was a related spiritual gift, but it was a different gift than prophecy itself. Uh, regardless, the weigher of prophecy would ask pointed questions and inquire about the prophetic word. They might compare what the prophet said came from God as new revelation to what the apostles had said earlier, or to perhaps some portion of the Old Testament scripture that they might have access to. Okay, so the weigher of prophecy, the evaluator of prophecy, would compare what the prophet just said to curb or check any prophetic word that was not really of the Spirit. Okay, so there are these restraints or restrictions on prophecy as well. But then the third restriction is found in verse 30. Look in your Bibles again at verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Here Paul again requires silence in practices involving prophecy. I think what he's saying in in verse 30 is he's teaching uh, a prophet who might be currently giving his prophetic word to sit down or to stop prophesying if someone else says that they have a word of prophecy as well. Okay, so I think he's being genuine here. If if someone gets a revelation while you're issuing your prophetic word, what you need to do is you need to, uh, you need to give way to the second person and their prophetic word. I think it might be implied here that the first prophet was kind of wrapping it up or something. Nearing the end, he just needed to be done. And, uh, and so he tells them that, that he needs to be silent or she needs to be silent. Again, notice that Paul's not requiring absolute unqualified silence for the prophets here. It's just if someone else wants wants to to issue a prophetic word, that's how I need to be, I need to stop prophesying. That doesn't mean I can't sing a hymn. 
It doesn't mean I can't participate in the worship gathering in other ways. It's not like I'm absolutely science a qualified science. You just no longer prophesy. We got that so far? You hanging with me? Okay, this is, this is interesting stuff. This is, I, I think it's fun stuff. You might not think that, but uh, Paul gives us final, I, I know what you're thinking. Just get to the woman part, you know, so uh, we're coming there. After giving this final restraint about prophets, prophets being silent, Paul gives two reasons why they should refrain or restrain from uncontrolled prophecy. First, he says that it is possible for a prophet to control the impulse to prophecy or prophesy and wait until the appropriate time so that others can grow. In other words, he says, since prophets can control themselves and the word that comes from the Lord, they should do so, so that others may learn and be encouraged by the voice of other uh, prophetic words. Um, and so uh, what he's basically saying here, I, I think, and I think that this perhaps gives us a helpful principle in life, and, and that is we should never claim to be so compelled by the Spirit of God that we cannot control what we're saying or doing. This text, he's basically saying the prophet can control the word of prophecy, and he can just sit down. Okay? But then he gives another reason for prophets to exercise restraint in verse 31. As a matter of fact, in your Bibles, if you like doing this sort of thing, you can mark, I think, the two reasons that he gives. Both start with the word for in the ESV text. In verse 20, 29, you've got a reason why he can be silent. In verse 31, you do too, as well. And they both start with the word for. So look down in your Bible at verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Um, actually, did I say verse 30, 29 and 31? I meant verses 31 and 33. I was off two verses. So that's the first reason. But the reason I want to talk about right now is verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Here with the second reason, Paul is connecting the nature of one's worship with the nature of his or her God. In other words, the Corinthians can control their worship and worship in an orderly manner, catch this, because they serve a God who's orderly. Gordon Fee explains it this way. He says, the theological point is crucial. The character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. So if this reason, Paul is telling prophets, you need to control yourself, you need to be willing to submit and subject because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He connects it right to the character of God. In other words here, if, if a worship service is disorderly and chaotic, then you know it is not of the Spirit of God, right? Because God isn't like that. God's orderly. I mean, just go through Genesis. <laughs> See how he cr created the world day by day, piece by piece. God is a God of order. So if worship is disorderly, run away. Because whatever spirit it is, man's spirit, other spirits, it's not God's spirit 
that is behind that. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so uh, we, we've worked through these two texts so far, these two worship problems. There was tongues speaking going on in an uncontrolled fashion. Paul gives them regulations to control it, to bring it under. There was uh, prophecy going on, verse 27, 28, and, and so God gives them regulations to control that. And then we get to verses 33b through 35, and the third problem that was going on in their services was a problem involving women in the worship service. Look in your Bible at verse 33 in, in the middle. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. And I've been making light of uh, a little bit uh, light of this topic, uh, but uh, I just want to, you know, to communicate that, of course, my heart is just to, to clearly portray what the scriptures say here. I know this is a very serious subject, and I know that many of you have important questions you'd like to ask about this. And, and so uh, at the end of the service, you have some questions. I'd love to try to help you with, with any of those. But I want to take a pass through this, this passage and try to help you understand it the, uh, the best that I see. Now, this text has drawn criticism from many contemporary scholars and Christians. Probably two of the most famous commentaries, most, uh, pop, I should say popular, can a commentary be famous? No, popular commentaries during this era are written by two New Testament scholars who are evangelical, one uh, by the name of Gordon Fee and the other by the name of Richard Harris. These commentaries have sold in droves. And professors at schools like Virginia Beach Theological Seminary, New Testament professors will use these resources. This is some of the first go-to resources that they'll use. But I want you to see what both of these men say about this passage. Uh, so I put it right in your notes. So if you've got that handout, you can look there. Gordon Fee says this. There is substantial evidence that these clearly intruding and thoroughly unpauline sentences, verses 34 and 35, are not authentic. And therefore, that Paul could not have intended it to go with what, could not have intended to go with what he did not write. See what Fee says here? He says Paul didn't write this. He suggests later on that what happened was a scribe came a few hundred years after Paul and he wrote it into the margin. It became a part of the text. Now, one of the issues I have with Fee doing that is every manuscript that we have of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, every Greek manuscript that we have ever found that has any part of 1 Corinthians 14, this last part of the text, has these verses in it. And Fee even admits that. Okay, so, I mean, just follow along. So, like, if we have scores and scores of manuscripts and they all have these verses in it, what do you think that might mean? What Fee says it means? He says it means it must have been a really early edition by a scribe. So a scribe early on wrote it, and then everyone else without fail followed. 
I'd say, well, that's one conclusion. I think that's a faulty conclusion. A better conclusion is maybe it's genuine. Maybe it's a Paul the Apostle, if every manuscript has it in it. But then you see the words of Richard Hayes here. Richard Hayes, another really important New Testament scholar these days. He writes, all things considered, this passage is best explained as a gloss, that's an addition by a scribe, introduced in the text by second or third generation Pauline interpreter who compiled the pastoral epistles. He's got those two words not capitalized. The similarity of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 and 1 Timothy 2 and 11 is striking. Both command women to learn in silence and submission. Such directives assume a later historical situation in which there was a conscience effort to restrict the rules played by women in the first generation Pauline churches. Okay, and so he again is saying, someone added this a few hundred years later. I think one of the questions we need to ask about scholars today and why they're doing this is, why are they doing this? Why do they claim that this is not Pauline? I think they've got a few reasons. Perhaps the greatest reason for them is this passage doesn't make a lot of sense for the way they view Paul. Okay, there are many evangelical scholars today who claim that women have um, rights even to be preachers and teachers of the Scripture, But perhaps one of the greatest reasons why scholars today struggle with this is they say that it doesn't really fit well with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, As a matter of fact, Richard Hayes, the one I just commented, he actually says this. He said, one of the strongest reasons for regarding these verses as a scribal edition is that the demand for women to remain silent in the assembly stands in glaring contradiction to chapter 11, in which Paul teaches that women may, in fact, pray and prophesy in church as they keep their heads appropriately covered. Okay, and so uh, the, the way this, this goes, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul encouraged women to pray and prophesy in the church. He expected them, uh, when they did that, to wear head covering. In other words, Paul expects for women to have an active role in their assemblies where they were speaking. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Yet in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul requires women to keep silent and explains that they're not permitted to speak. I want to to say, though, instead of suggesting that these verses are not Pauline, we should seek to understand 1 Corinthians 14 in its own context and then compare it to 1 Corinthians 11. I think when you do that, the tension goes away. Now, while there are several possible solutions to this problem, I give you a footnote there. I just want to now work down through 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, and explain what I think is going on. Okay, so you've done a great job listening. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think is going on here. Okay. So you get these three commands to be silent. In the first text, you had uh, Paul talking about, was it tongues or prophecy at the beginning? I think it's prophecy. No, tongues. It's tongues. And he says, if there's no one there to interpret, you need to remain silent. In the second one, he says prophets need to follow these regulations, and they need to be silent sometimes. And he also talks about their need for being a wearer of prophecy. In my opinion, what's going on in these verses is Paul is extending that second discussion about prophecy 
and about people who would weigh or evaluate prophecy. And that what he's strictly forbidden is a woman in the first century church of Corinth exercising authority over a man by weighing or evaluating his prophetic utterance. Okay, so verses 33 through 36 just kind of continue with the discussion of prophecy and weighing of prophecy. And so Paul puts several conditions on the women here. Let's just look at the text again. He says in verse 33a or b, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they're not permitted to speak. Again, I don't see this as absolute silence, but a, a particular type of silence and not speaking. They should be in submission, as the law also says. That's a tough phrase because Paul is basically uh, suggesting that the Corinthians know where in the law it says that women should be submissive. Okay, the problem is no one's really sure. Maybe the creation narratives. You know, I've always wanted to write a little something on this about maybe a text like the Isaiah text in Isaiah 28. Matter of fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21, what's he say? 14:21 in the law it is written, and he quotes Isaiah. I think he may have an Isaiah text in his mind here too when he says the law teaches that women should be submissive, but we don't know for sure. Look at verse 35, though he says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their men, their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Again, as I look at my notes here, it seems that Paul's correcting another problem in the Corinthian assembly. Some women were acting as public weighers or evaluators of prophecy and were issuing authoritative evaluations of the prophecies of others, including perhaps their own men, whether that would be their husband or their father. You know, we've all experienced situations and comfortable scenes where a spouse questioned or confronted their spouse in front of other people, right? You ever experienced anything? How many of you have ever experienced? It's always other people's marriages, right? Not mine, others. Sometimes this leads to uh, a tension that is so intense that everyone present knows that there's a problem or that there will be a price to pay later on. In the first century, such an action on, be, on, on the behalf of a woman, I, you know, I get the picture of a woman hearing the prophetic utterance of her husband, and, starting, and she starts asking questions about it so that it becomes obvious that the man is not really right. So she confronts or corrects by asking questions and pointing in different ways. So I think what Paul's doing here is Paul's requiring a particular kind of silence. A woman was not to weigh the prophecy of her man. Instead, she should ask her man at home. If a woman confronted her husband in such a way in a first century church, it would be culturally shaming to him. So she's got questions about his prophetic utterance. She can ask him at home. 
And, uh, and so what, what I think is going on here, I think Paul is actually giving a bit of marriage or family counseling as men and women relate to each other in the corporate gatherings. Now, since prophecy and tongues have ceased, I think that this text, uh, the specific application of this text that this text is talking about is no longer still binding because uh, I don't believe there are prophetic utterances going on in the church, so then I don't think there are people that need to weigh them either. Uh, and so I suggest women can function fully in the assembly except the pastoral epistles, which are Pauline, actually say that they cannot preach or teach But I think that what's being laid down here is that women as well should not exercise authority over men in the public assembly. So again, the other underlying requirement here is silence. If our verbal participation in the service is distracting to other people, in some cases, then silence is uh, golden. It's what needs to happen. Now, laying at the heart of this, then, is the thought that it is far better for me to, be, to listen and to be silent than to insist on saying something that might throw off the order of the service, the worship of the service. And to me, laying at the heart of this as well is, should be the believer's desire that people would be riveted not by their own giftedness and contributions, but by their God. And so while we go through this text and Paul's handling all the worship problems in Corinth, I think he's laying out principles that can still be relevant and still guide us. If worship is disorderly, it's out of control, it's chaos, it's not of God's spirit. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through this text. I know there was a lot of teaching this evening. Of course, as we look at this text, we we know that uh, it sounds so different. It sounds difficult for us to process. Lord, I pray that if I was not clear in some way this evening that that believers would be able to help each other with this text. Lord, I pray that uh, if there are questions, that we might be able to get those answered and resolved, Lord. And I pray that uh, our hearts would be such that we would never want to do anything distracting in worship that would draw away from who you are and your character. You're God of peace. We, We certainly want people to see that. But often, Lord, in our own self centered spirit, we we insist on our own contributions to the point where we perhaps would even be content with disorder so that we would receive the praise and the approval and the glory. So, Lord, uh, please give us grace. Protect our church. May our entire services, may may our worship, may our preaching, may our teaching be orderly, clearly communicating your word because we know your word has the power to change lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.